Well, what a delight uh, to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, Drew, thank you. Oh, Drew just went out the back, but that was, uh, I'm so glad Drew read. He did much better than I would have done. It was just beautiful. Uh, it's lovely when children lead us, isn't it? Well, it's, uh, it, it's not my first time at Knox, and, uh, but it's my first time in a few years. Uh, and, and I'm just so astonished by the beauty of the sanctuary these days. What a lovely renovation that has taken place. It's, uh, it's wonderful. It just is so filled with light and, and uh, what a wonderful place you must have every, every Sunday morning. But I do see that uh, Moses still has the horns of light. So I'm glad, I'm glad that that's there. You can ask me about that later if you want. If you don't already know. <laughs> well, here we are. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's the season of epiphany in, in the church year. You know, we have all sorts of calendars that we follow uh, in, uh, in our lives. And, uh, and one of them is the church calendar. And this is the season of epiphany, the season of the church that celebrates the manifestation of Jesus Christ to the world as the Lord of all. You know, it, at Christmas time, he arrives as, as this offering of hope for God's people. But then, you know, the visit of the Magi, for instance, is one of the first instances where Jesus' reality is made known to people outside of the Jewish world. And so we celebrate that during Epiphany. And this morning's readings that, that, uh, that Drew read so beautifully are chock full of the themes uh, of this season of Epiphany. The Old Testament reading from Isaiah and the Gospel reading from Luke record two very different but clear examples of God revealing himself to humanity. And they offer us, I think, some important instruction about how we as humans should respond when, when God reveals himself to us. So let me just pray for us as we start. <laughs> Lord, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight this morning, we pray, O Lord Most High. Amen. Well, I think, I think the first thing that we might learn from these readings is that when God openly reveals himself to people, they get an immediate insight into the way things really are. When God reveals himself to people, they get an insight into the way things really are. Let's begin with Isaiah's vision in the temple, for instance. To say that what Isaiah witnessed was spectacular would be, I think, to seriously understate what he experienced. Uh, it, overwhelming might be closer. You know, the, he was drowning in these sights and these sounds of experience when suddenly he himself has an epiphany. That's right. Isaiah has a brilliant insight in the midst of this. You remember it? Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's kind of saying, I'm a dead man. Because <laughs> you weren't supposed to be able to see the Lord and live. Isaiah gained in an instant this clear picture of what was really real. God. God was really real. And he gained a picture of who he really was, sinful and unworthy to be anywhere near him. Well, we read a similar account in Luke chapter 5. Now, the context is very, very different. We're far from the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, we're way up in the north in the backwaters of Galilee. 
And we're on the shores of a lake. We're not in the temple. Peter is not at worship. He's at work, like many of us might be. In fact, he's finishing up work. He and the other fishermen have been out all night trying to catch fish. It was not a good night. They had come up completely empty. They're cleaning the seaweed and the other trash out of their empty drag nets before they head home to bed. There are no seraphs. There's no earthquakes. There's no throne. There's no heavenly chorus. There's just this rabbi on the shore who he had recently met, who kind of intrigued him because, you know, he had healed his mother-in-law, and that was a good thing. And, and so he was interesting. And now this rabbi is asking him to put out his boat onto the water so that he can teach the, the crowds that are beginning to gather. Well, Peter probably feels indebted to the teacher for, for his healing gift, and so he does as requested. And Jesus speaks to the crowds on the shore. And then, and then it starts getting a little strange for Peter. The teacher says to him, Peter, uh, just put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. I, I don't know, I, I think Jesus said it with a straight face, but, you know, knowing that he knows what's coming, there must have been a twinkle in his eye at least. I, but I bet this felt like a bridge way too far for Peter, the professional fisherman. Peter may have wanted to be polite, but he is thinking in his heart, this guy should really stick to teaching. <laughs> He's pretty good at that. Because to do what he asked would mean that they would have to row back out a ways offshore, throw their now clean nets back into the water, and perform what Peter is sensibly convinced is a fruitless task. This is crazy business. Peter knows these waters. He knows what time of day it is. He knows when the fish are around and when they're not. He knows that they're going to pull up those nets after, and the only catch is going to be more seaweed and more detritus that they're going to have to clean out before they finally get to crawl home to bed. But bless him. He has this strange feeling about this rabbi, and so with a grudging sort of faith, he agrees. Master, we have worked all night long. And we've caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Well, we read what happens next. <laughs> the thunder hits. The boat begins to shake. This roiling mass of fish breaks the surface of the water. It's so immense and heavy that it threatens to, to break the nets. You know, there are no thrice holies being sung into the morning air. Just the alarm, help, 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 from, from the fishermen who are trying to bring in this catch. And while the whole earth was not full of God's glory, those boats were so full of fishy glory that they began to sink. However, what to many might have elicited these shouts of thanksgiving and praise wrenches from Peter's lips a confession, a confession that if we're paying attention, echoes Isaiah's. He turns to Jesus and he falls down before him and grabs his knees and cries, go away from me, Lord, 
for I am a sinful man. As a sidebar here, we should note that, that Peter's addressing Jesus as Lord is, is more than just a polite formality. Peter at some level knows exactly who's standing before him. And although the transfiguration on the mountain with its open declaration of Jesus' divine status is still a few chapters off, in this moment of revelation at the water's edge, the veil of Peter's temporal world is pulled back just a little. And he sees things as they really are. And he responds just like Isaiah. So, for us, I think for us, this is at least part of what it looks like when we encounter the living God. We're confronted with our frailty, with our weakness, and with our sinfulness. We see things as they really are. And we have this overwhelming vision of our own unworthiness. And so, properly, we fall to our knees in confession and repentance. And I want to be a little bold uh, now and suggest that, that humble confession and repentance is not just one of a number of options that we have in responding to an encounter with the Lord. No, humble confession and repentance is the only response we have when confronted with the reality of the Lord. You can keep on reading through the scripture and you'll find it in many, many places. It happens to the Apostle Paul when he's still Saul. Remember when he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road? Later he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church. Peter, uh, sorry, rather, Paul confessed on the Damascus Road. He was actually knocked off his horse with God's glory. And King David, in the same way, who had his own issues, recognized the necessity of confession and repentance when confronted with the reality of the Lord. Even in the midst of Psalm 138, this psalm of praise and thanksgiving, he remembers, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, he perceives from afar. He draws near to the humble and to the repentant. Humble confession and repentance for all of us is a necessary response to an encounter with God. But it's not the conclusion of the encounter. That's just the beginning. Look at what happens next in both those passages we heard read this morning. Immediately following Isaiah's confession, a seraph takes a coal from the altar, touches it to Isaiah's lips, and the Lord himself declares, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out, and immediately follows it up with a call. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? To which Isaiah responds obediently, uh, here, here I am, send me. And after Peter's confession, Jesus turns to him and he says, don't be afraid, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. And when they make it to shore, Peter obediently responds by leaving everything. I'm assuming that also meant that huge, giant catch of fish. 
Somebody else is going to have to clean those. And he follows Jesus along with James and John. The Lord's response to the confession of these people and to our confession is forgiveness. Forgiveness and the empowering call. And our response to that call is obedience, which yesterday morning we reminded ourselves was just listening fully, listening responsibly to what God has for us. It's the same for Paul. It's the same for David. It's the same for you, and it's the same for me. When we genuinely encounter God, we see things as they really are, and we fall humbly to our knees, and we confess that we are sinful people, and the Lord responds to our humble admission of repentance, and he forgives us, and he calls us to service, and we respond to that call to service with grateful obedience. Well, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, thanks so much, Cal. <clears throat> Next time I have a vision in the sanctuary or uh, my boat starts sinking out on the lake because of the morning's catch or I'm blinded by a light from heaven on my way to Etobicoke, I, I will remember how I need to respond. But most of my days, most of my days are not filled with these direct kind of encounters with God. So of what help are these responses to me? I, I might reply by saying that none of these writers that we have heard from this morning were in the habit of receiving frequent, remarkable manifestations from God. Even when they had received them, it didn't mean for them that they floated through the rest of life with an otherworldly sense of serenity and purpose. Mm -mm. No, they faced some really hard things. In in the, the routines of their everyday experience. I may also say that you might be missing the many ways in which the Lord does manifest himself to you and to me every single day. He's always showing up. He's always showing up all the time. We just don't pay attention. I think that for the apostles, Peter and Paul, the spectacular ways in which God makes himself known to them would be important markers, obviously, for them for the rest of their lives. But it wasn't the consistent way that Christ made his presence known to them, that he was manifest to them. For them and for us, the everyday evidence for the apostles and for us, since the day of Pentecost, has been the presence of God's Holy Spirit at the very center of who you and I are in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that every day is epiphany for us. The reality of God is always being manifest to us right at the very heart of who we are because we are in Jesus. All we need to do is pay attention. The Spirit comforts us. The Spirit illumines us. The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit invites us, encourages us. He promises to lead us into all truth, a.k.a. to see things as they really are. And when we do, 
when we recognize his life in us and, and his life given for us, we're humbled. And we confess that, that we haven't been paying attention. And that we have done things we ought not to have done, and we've left done, thi- done, we've left undone things we should have done. And we recognize that there is no good in us apart from him. And when we do that, the Spirit in return assures us of God's forgiveness, lifts us up, tells us not to be afraid, and invites us to continue our journey and work in God's kingdom. Well, I want to take just a couple of minutes here at the end of, at the end of this little sermon uh, to, uh, to ask you three questions on which I'd like you to reflect. Here they are. When in the last 24 hours have you encountered God at work in your life? Just a reminder, he has been at work, so so this is your work now to figure out where it was. When in the last 24 hours has God been at work in your life? And what was your response to that encounter? Did you respond positively or negatively to the invitation God's Spirit was laying before you? And as you answer that, maybe just add in that why. You know, what was it, what was it that made that difference? And then lastly, if you did respond positively to that invitation, how will you ensure that you follow through? What practical steps are you going to do to make that call and that sense of duty and responsibility a reality? Or if you responded negatively to the invitation, what work will you need to do to allow the Spirit and to allow you to better cooperate with the good work that He's doing in you? There you go. Take, uh, take a couple of minutes to, uh, to rest in those and to see what the Spirit of God has for you.
So, later today, when you meet God, confess your sins. Humbly repent. Receive God's promise of forgiveness and peace. And respond with grateful obedience to the life and the work His Spirit offers you. And if you forget everything else from this morning, remember this. Every day is epiphany. Amen.